And one of the cardinal features, one of the most important things that's been learned in the this sort of second round, second renaissance in the clinical trials has been the importance of two things that were not really understood that well uh, in the 60s, uh, and that is preparation and integration. Uh, by contrast, one of the things that really was uh, discovered early on and articulated very well by Ram Dass and also by Leary was the importance of so-called set and setting. Yeah. And that has that has yeah. survived. That was yeah. figured out early on and it never went away and it's and it's been uh, rediscovered over and over again. Hi everyone, it's Raghu again with Mind Rolling, and I'm uh, with a new friend, and his name is Silver Covedo. Is that good, my pronunciation on that? A absolutely Covedo. good, yeah. yeah, terrific. Yeah, Covedo, yeah, Covedo or Covedo. Covedo. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's probably Silver. No, actually, Silver is a nickname that I kind of grew up with. My my full name is uh, Silvestre in Spanish, Silvester. Oh. <laughs> so, listen, we got to hear a little bit about where you grew up and your antecedents, uh, ancestors included. I think that that uh, to let us all know where yeah. you're coming from and where because where you're coming from. Uh, the arc to where you are now and the way you have... So uh, let me just say, everybody, uh, Silver is uh, doing a lot of amazing research around uh, with MAPS. I think ma many of you know who MAPS is around psychedelic therapy, etc. Okay, so he's deep in, into that. And uh, yeah, the hearing about your antecedents and where you come from Really, you have a foot in the scientific world and in the um, real world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's I'm a good way. Sorry, to, that's, that's a good way to put it. <laughs> uh, so let me, let me see if I can be be uh, concise about this because there's a, uh, there's a uh, it's a long story because I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's but, okay. But, we have more time. <laughs> I was born in 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 uh, Southern California um and my uh family is all from southwestern New Mexico and uh some parts of my family are indigenous to the American Southwest have been there for many generations uh before it was part of the US way back. Um and another part, the other part of my, my my father's side is from the borderlands, from the area right along the Chihuahua-New Mexico border, mm. uh, which uh, many people will recognize uh, wasn't always where the border was. So a lot of the people that in my family say we never crossed the border, the border kept crossing us. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. So. So uh, that, that's where my roots are. My uh, on both sides of my family, uh, lots of New Mexican uh, Hispanic, as I say, from many generations past, and some more recent from the border zone area, and and indigenous uh, people, relatives, uh, Mescalero, Apache, and Pueblo people um, on both sides. Mm. Well, so, Pueblo people go. I mean, you said yeah. generations. Pueblo people go back. 
uh, eons, for that matter. I mean, <laughs> right? Because I only know, you know, being in Taos, because, and I did live in New Mexico myself in Santa Fe at yeah. one time, but spending a lot of time in Taos, because that's where we have uh, our uh, right. Hanuman temple. Yes. Yeah. Uh, from what we came back to India, from India with. Um, so I do, you know, that com- that's the oldest ongoing town, community, town, town in America is Taos. Right. Because right. of the Pueblo people. Yes. Yeah. And, I, and I've been to the ashram in, in Taos. Beautiful. Uh, oh, yeah. Play. Yeah. B- wonderful mm. community. Wonderful place. Lots of history, as we've talked about with Ram Dass and, and Maharaji and, and all of that. So it's, it's all there. And it's, and it's, it's wonderful that it's just right down the road, you know, from the Pueblo. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll tell you why I think that, but anyway, that, uh, yeah, Pueblo people, people are some of the original people to the, uh, Southwest and yeah, going back, uh, centuries and centuries, uh, different than other, uh, uh, cultures and communities. Uh, they tended to be agriculturalists. They lived, locally along the Rio Grande, which is the major water source. Uh, Apaches had a different culture. They were more hunter-gatherer, um, more uh, itinerant, nomadic, um, and, and so different, different sort of cultures, but both indigenous to that area, to the southwestern um, U.S. And, and uh, there, there's a lot to that in the sense that there is a kind of identity, culture, and sort of worldview that precedes uh, the colonial period, first the Spanish colonial period, and then mm. the uh, American English colonial period, uh, and 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 people still uh, they remember. It's it's kind of amazing how that is. I mean, <laughs> it's passed down through the generations in, in the stories, etc. Really? But yeah, and so so and and that sort of uh, uh, identity and and worldview, etc., is sort of alive and well. As you know, you've been in New Mexico. Um, and there's lots of variations within the theme. You know, we're comfortable now saying that there's more variation within groups than between groups. So it's not as if all Pueblo people are a monolith. There's a whole range. But I sort of grew up quite comfortable being uh, in relationship to indigenous people, indigenous sort of cosmology and perspectives, as well as uh, much more modern uh, uh, modernist um, worldviews. My parents left the New Mexico area and started traveling to Los Angeles during the Great Depression when the mines closed. My father's family worked in the mines, and um, wow. they, they started coming to LA and in the in the 30s, uh, and finally settled out there just before World War II in the in, in, the, in the late 30s. Uh, and I grew up in Los Angeles. Amidst a community of mostly people from New Mexico who had migrated to Southern California, my, um, <clears throat> but also uh, because of the where we were from, um, a lot of my family spoke Spanish quite well, and 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 they were very close to Spanish-speaking pe- people in in uh, in Southern California. The majority of whom at the time, and and even now, I think, are, are Mexican, Mexican American. And that's a, a broad term because it, it has a lot of uh, connotations, mm. um, not least of which is that, uh, you know, what's part of Mexico now wasn't wasn't always part of Mexico and was part of the U.S. Was, was, I once asked one of my grandfathers who was Pueblo, like, which country was he born in? And because he was born right right on the river. And he said, I didn't like either one of them that much. <laughs> <laughs> 
And what, what, he was, what he was trying to tell me is he's from the land. He's not from a, from a country, uh, which, which they saw as uh, f- fictions. Right. You know? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah. anyway, so, yeah, so that's the background. Uh, I went to mm. school in California. I went to college at Berkeley. And uh, um, I was there during the 60s, and it was an important period for me. I had a sort of very much an awakening the, uh, of my sort of uh, awareness of the historical moment and that it, it sort of mattered how you lived your life, you know, during the, mm-hmm. during the early civil rights era. I uh, went on to medical school at Harvard. Um, enjoyed being in, the, in New England because it was really completely different than anything I do, very broadening for me. Uh, <clears throat> I went to work in community health centers because I wanted to work in, in uh, underserved areas and particularly in the American Southwest. I went to the University of Arizona for a while then started uh, a few community health centers um, in Colorado, New Mexico area, worked in that uh, world for about five years. And then lar- largely I, I had trained in family medicine. I didn't like being treated as the second class citizen by hospital type doctors and specialists. Mm. <laughs> so, mm. so I went back to training at Stanford in, in internal medicine and nephrology did specialty training in kidney disease and did high tech medicine, hospital medicine for several years, was on the faculty for about 14 years at Stanford doing uh, uh, nephrology and teaching residents wow. and dialysis and transplantation. But as as often has happened in my, my career, I got sort of uh, tired of uh, the smallness of the mindset of the specialist, even though I liked the uh, precision uh, in, in, in the application of some of the technology that we had, uh, general practice is much harder than specialty practice for, for lots of reasons. We can talk about that. Anyway, Imagine, yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, um, I, um, had an opportunity to travel in the early days of integrative, the integrative medicine, uh, movement, which I was interested in. I thought we should be doing more prevention and, and et cetera, et cetera. And, and nephrologists weren't interested. They said, that's what happens in medical clinic. Uh, we don't do that kind of thing, the usual stuff. Yeah. Um, so, <clears throat> so I uh, I started uh, I traveled for a year uh, doing consultation work for during a sabbatical with a consortium of hospitals to see whether integrated medicine models could be applied in community ho- as, uh, in community hospitals. And we set up uh, some com- an integrated medicine center at this particular hospital and. All of that led me to becoming part of the OSHA Center for Integrative Medicine at uh, UCSF, uh, where I was a clinical director and OSHA professor of integrative medicine in, the, in uh, probably um, close to 20 years ago now. And that was a, that was a time when we were hoping uh, that two things. One, that we could, through integrative medicine, return... Um, return to a more holistic approach to patients, sort of body, mind, and spirit, and also that we would have more of a comparative approach to uh, to medicine and to healing. That uh, Western scientific medicine, we used to say Western scientific medicine, from an integrated medicine point of view, is a medicine, not the medicine. Uh, and we had Ayurvedic practitioners working with us and Chinese medicine practitioners, et cetera, et cetera. So it was an interesting period, good period. Not an easy fit, uh, as you might imagine, uh, into the very traditional structure of an academic medical center. And that struggle still goes on. But in general, integrative medicine has survived and flourished in some places. Um, But uh, I also 
uh, was feeling a little bit tired of that um, and had another sabbatical opportunity and started to work uh, internationally. Uh, I was asked to broker a meeting between traditional healers because I had spent a lot of time doing that during my integrative medicine years um, to broker medicine with traditional healers in, in Kenya, in Nairobi, uh, and World Health Organization, WHO-type doctors. Uh, they, they were... Um, not communicating. <laughs> People were giving antiretrovirals, mm -hmm. at antiretroviral drugs, and patients were going to traditional healers who were saying that to be careful, those drugs can kill you. And in those days, uh, actually, that was true. Um, and um, so there was a lot of difficulties in communication. People would often sort of put the drugs on the mantle and pray to them rather than take them, etc. So we had a very interesting time. Uh, a friend of mine, Onesmo uh, Onomoyoi, who was also a physician, but also Maasai, uh, who I knew actually at Harvard in Boston, he and I brokered a meeting with doctors and traditional healers, and it was really uh, one of the wildest uh, and most interesting. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it led to my, my working in Kenya for uh, almost eight years uh, mm. uh, representing global health at UCSF. And that was all done, but I came back to, uh, when I was coming back to the U.S. about 2015 and not traveling anymore, um, I had a son who had been in the uh, Navy for uh, 15 years, for a decade and a half, and really had some very traumatic experiences while um, mm. deployed and, and uh, had some real PTSD. And I, I frankly didn't really understand it very well. And I uh, reached out to some people I knew that were working in the field and, and they, mm. and I knew some of the people at MAPS were working on that and make a long story short, that led to me becoming involved with the MAPS trial, which uses MDMA for the treatment of PTSD, which um, it, it has been remarkably uh, successful. And, and we can talk ab about that. But as you may know, two things about PTSD. One, it's a terrible problem, uh, much worse than people realize, um, as it is true, as is true for many mental health, mental health problems. Um, but, but also the treatments are not very good, also true for many mental health problems. <laughs> and this mm. leads to the sort of rather fascinating uh, explosion in interest in psychedelics as a treatment for uh, PTSD, depression, etc. Uh, and, and as so-called breakthrough therapies, uh, actually designated by the FDA um, for some of these conditions, because they're so different and so much more effective uh, than conventional therapies. And uh, that that's a whole other topic. But in, in, a, in a nutshell, that's sort of how I got to where I'm at in in the in the meantime uh, fif about 50 years had passed since i graduated from medical school so so here we are me and you <laughs> <Rugged. Yeah. laughs> uh, i know it's quite an arc well you know uh, go back to the 60s and i know um there's concern on almost i would say most people who are involved with psychedelic research now uh about any kind of throwback to the 60s and the the um, purview that we had then, which was not anything but, holy jeez, this is incredible, and I'm going to take it until I get through <laughs> onto the other side. As uh, And as Ramdas famously said, right. I kept coming down. So I went and I went to India looking for a map 
where I wasn't going to come down. But I also I like to say that although all of that is true around the '60s, you know, misguided stuff, and um, you know, we were mostly young kids, you know, and uh, naive. So we had all of that going. So there's some truth there. But on the other hand, the ideals that came through there were real, even if we were misguided and naive about a lot of stuff, including psychedelics. And that, uh, that translates, in my mind, to what I referred to earlier, of course, jokingly, the reality I mean, science is part of the reality as much as anything is part of the reality. But in terms of the truth, that love that we were pursuing and that unity is a real, uh, it was a worthy cause, no? Absolutely. And, you know, well said. I mean, I, I once said, you know, we don't want to make the mistakes of the 60s, but I sort of rapidly, quickly added and and it's not to say that there weren't successes in the 60s. There were. I mean, we were in the midst of the civil rights movement. We were in the midst of the anti-war movement. We we used to, as you say, peace and love were values that we cared seriously about. And for those who had psychedelic experiences associated with this sort of empathogenic quality that occurs with many psychedelics, uh, that is a sort of opening of the heart and, and a sort of... Uh, more sort of pro-social behaviors, uh, the mm-hmm. practice of loving kindness. Um, th- th- that's, yeah, absolutely. Those values were important, are important, and remain that way. And similarly, some of the aphorisms, some of the sort of teachings that people came out with, exactly what you said, what Ram Dass used to say, you know, the trouble with getting high is you come down. And that's so much, that's as ever true <laughs> now. So, yeah. So and 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 uh, you know that's that's a big issue in psychedelic therapies. Um, so okay, you know you have these big experiences. How is it integrated? And one of the cardinal features, one of the most important things that's been learned in the this sort of second round, second renaissance in the clinical trials has been the importance of two things that were not really understood that well uh, in the '60s, uh, and that is preparation and integration. Uh, by contrast, one of the things that really was uh, discovered early on and articulated very well by Ramdas and also by Leary was the importance of so-called set and setting, and yeah. that has that has yeah. survived. That was yeah. figured out early on, and it never went away, and it's and it's been uh, rediscovered over and over again. So we're we're comfortable. Um, saying that the psychedelic experience is really uh, a function of three things, uh, the medicine, both quality and dose, uh, set and setting. Mm. And and uh, Houston Smith has said this exactly, and that the point is not just a spiritual experience uh, or a empathogenic or heart-opening experience, but it's, uh, uh, it's a spiritual life and and a, and a life that has the practice of loving kindness within it and and that and that mm-hmm. is that is what um uh integration is about um yeah. and, and so yeah so that's so that, great actually it just cuz it just you just reminded me god how this fits it's so many people and you and I discussed this when we've been hanging out and you know, 
what happened when Ramdas gave Neem Karoli Baba acid, huge doses, yeah. right? And so, I th you know, the, those stories are famous. Nothing yeah. happened, right? <laughs> uh, and then, uh, but uh, when Ramdas came back from India the first time, he was wondering, shit, did he really take it or did he flip it behind him while I wasn't looking or something? And he came back with this doubt. So he sat down and the first thing... <laughs> Maharaji, we called him, said, was, uh, do you have uh, any more of that, uh, what do you call it, yogi medicine? That's what he called it, yogi medicine. And Ramdas said, yes. Uh, and he made reference, he said to Ramdas, did I take it last time? <laughs> In other words, knowing everything that was going through his head. Ramdas said, oh, yeah, well, anyhow, so he gave him a huge dose and he put each tab visibly on his tongue, closed his mouth and swallowed, right? One after the other, a dose that, you know, forget heroic, it was ridiculous. Nobody survived right. that. Um, anyhow, that is all fun stuff. But what you just said, uh, uh, just that comment, uh, if there isn't loving kindness involved after the experience is had and that opens and blossoms in the way that loving kindness can, mm -hmm. compassion and, and, and love and so on, uh, then what are we talking about? So what did Maharaji say about acid? It's good for in the beginning, good for beginner. He didn't quite say beginner, <laughs> but he said, you know, for one time is good. Uh, it allows you to come into the room and have darshan of Christ mm. for a few hours. Then you have to leave. He said, and ultimately isn't a word he would ever say, but you, he, said, he said, better to just feed people. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> something you know feed love everyone and feed everybody and yeah. which is what are, what are we talking about is is that has to be integrated what does that really mean it means you're th not thinking about yourself you start to think of others loving kindness empathetic joy you know all of those things that's how it gets hopefully integrated in into one's life following these kinds of experiences right A absolutely and nicely said i mean you know, it's 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 like uh, as as Ramdas used to say. You know, love, serve, and remember. Uh, you know, love each other, um, serve each other. We, we in Native Americans say, serve uh, the the value of your life is its impact on the seventh generation. Oh and, wow! And 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 the and the the teepee church prayer is uh, infinite gratitude to all those who have gone before us. So that's remember. Uh, Ramdas meant more like remember God, but remember the ancestors and all of the forces of creation. That's yeah. in the broader sense. Yeah. Serve, you know, the infinite. So the the prayer is infinite love to infinite gratitude to all those who have gone before us. Infinite love to all those who walk beside us, because we're relational, we're all connected, we're all related. That's another sort of very mm. typical North American, Western indigenous, you know, as a Lakota say, we're all relatives and that sort of thing. Uh, and then, did you and, get that, Sula? Did, when, when you were young, were, were your relatives 
feeding you uh, this uh, information, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, and and it was sort of embedded in my world. And some of it I thought was sort of old-fashioned at the time. I mean, Uh, I've I've come to see the wisdom as as I've gotten older and and studied it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, the mountains have spirits, nature has spirits, and and you're you're connected not just to other people, but to the spirit beings of the world. You're relating, from that point of view, um, ontology is relational. Your beingness is out of, comes out of your relationships. And, you know, in Buddhist thought, this is very similar mm. to the, yeah. to the idea of, uh, you know, uh, Pratyasamitpada, like the, the, the idea of dependent origination, mm. no, no yeah. entity, no entity arises only unto itself. It's always in relationship or by virtue of other things. And that's kind of a relational, uh, ontology. So, yeah, but it was embedded in the language and stuff, you know, and, and as, only as I sort of learned more broadly how to, uh, I've come back to see the, the, the wisdom in it. But it is love, serve, um, and, and remember. And That's remember. so wonderful, <laughs> the, the, the connectivity to that wisdom and yeah. what, what we were given in India. No, yeah, well, absolutely right. the same. And, and what you're saying about uh, Maharaji and, and Ram Das. I wondered about that. I thought, wow, but you know, to a bhakti yogi, to a bhakti yogi uh, the, the practice of devotion, which is a practice of love, um, is part of your world. It, it's a, it's, and, and my feeling about Maharaji is that he knew that. He, he lived that. And, and, and that was so, so powerful to understand, you know, um, that, that whole thing. And yes, that is one of the things that happens with some of these medicines like MDMA. People have uh, an expanded uh, uh, sense of connection, relationship, and love. And that's a, it's a profound thing for many people who've never experienced it at all. But it is exactly what you say. When, when the, the drug wears off, then what? Well, <laughs> that's where your practice is. Your, that's where your... your uh, uh, you know, your, all your practices uh, become uh, so important. Can you uh, give us uh, any examples in terms of the research and the work that you've been doing with MAPS around MD, MDMA? So MDMA... Individual, you know, like what has... You've seen an individual, you, you must talk to them before anything and... And, yeah, yeah. Right. So, so the MDMA trial. So MDMA uh, for people who may not know, although virtually everybody knows about MDMA now, but is methylene dioxymethamphetamine. It's a substituted amphetamine uh, known from the pre-prohibition period as MDMA, uh, sort of brought back into circulation by Sasha Shogun. But even before that, MDA was quite known. It's a related compound. And, and it was used in the 60s uh, and 70s to enhance uh, uh, therapy. It, it Im- improved the relationship, the therapeutic alliance, and it was very useful in couples therapy, etc. Anyway, so that was all known. <laughs> I'm and only, was... I'm sorry I'm laughing. Because <laughs> you remember. <laughs> I do. And, and the, that's the, good, that's good. <laughs> the context you just put it in wasn't quite where I was. <laughs> Well, yeah, we won't go into that, but it's been used no. in many other settings yes. as well. <laughs> right. Um, one, one, one corollary that is important in the research related to what we just said is that much of the toxicology literature with MDMA 
looks very bad and people have seizures and all this stuff. But that's all from underground use where the quality and the purity of the MDMA was never used and the dosing was very different. So no, the, it was all speed. They, that's right. That's right. They either didn't know what they were doing or were purposeful. Commonly. Uh, about using, you know, the, the meth and whatever, the amphetamine part. Commonly, commonly adulterated. So one of the important findings of the trial uh, is that MDMA given under the right circumstances at the right dose of pure, that pure MDMA, pharmaceutical quality purity, is safe. Uh, and that's, that's a big finding. Um, and and so, so that's one thing. The second thing is that we were treating uh, PTSD. And in, in post-traumatic stress disorder, um, so a couple quick things. It usually happens with a big trauma, assault, near death, uh, many e- examples, and I'm sure people are aware of that, much more prevalent than is, than is what is published because people don't talk about these traumatic experiences. Mm-hmm. How do they deal with it in their own way? A lot of times self-medicating with various substances, etc. Big, big problem. And now worse than ever because of our 15 years or 14 years of war and on and on. Um, so... What's important about PTSD patients, number one absolutely prerequisite is the establishment of a safe, for them the hardest thing is finding a place that's safe and a person that they can trust because they're hypervigilant and they're risk avoidant because they've been hurt so bad. So we we work Mm. in the preparation sessions to create safety and trust in the therapeutic relationship. Why is that important with psychedelics? It's the same point. Set and setting, the the mental set or the expectations, intentionality, et cetera, is important. Uh, But the setting is not only the physical location, but it's also the people. If you're with people that you don't trust or you, you can't trust or who are not there for your best interests, it can be not a good thing. And, and that's that's another important finding in the trial, but it's not just from the trial. It's what actually uh, Ramdas and, and Albert, I mean, and, and Leary were uh, saying very early on in the 60s when they were still at Harvard, that set and setting, the drug seems to, to be interacting with set and setting. So all of that has led to this trial of MDMA with PTSD, and the results are remarkable. I can't talk about the new trial that's still uh, being published because it hasn't been released yet. Mm. Uh, but the first 100 patients have been published in Nature uh, in 2022. And uh, for patients, and it was uh, two arms, it was double-blinded and placebo-controlled uh, uh, MDMA study. And in the placebo arm, they got therapy only, but but uh, placebo capsule they didn't know uh, was or was not MDMA, no one knew, so it was blinded both to the mm-hmm. experimenters as well as the patients. And the uh, therapy uh, group uh, had about a 30% on average improvement in their CAP scores, which is a PTSD measure. It's a very sort of um, um, statistical uh, instrument that takes lots of questions and adds up to a score mm. uh, that grades PTSD. Uh, but the MDMA group had uh, around a 70% improvement, anywhere from 66% to 80% was the range uh, in their in their uh, PTSD scores. Now, the big surprise was that several months later, uh, 12 months later in the follow-up studies, the MDMA, and this was after three MDMA sessions, which are all day, 
uh, spaced one month apart. And, and then 12 months late, and then no you more. You mean three, three consecutive uh, intake of a dose? Uh, so, no, so one MDMA dose, a session that lasts eight hours, uh, and then a month later, a second MDMA dose, uh-huh. and then a third month, the third MDMA dose. So three MDMA doses, each, each day long with two therapists, usually a male and female, in the room, in, a, in very much a clinical research setting. So it's clinic rooms, not out in nature or anything like that. So, right. And still, the, the intervention group, the group that got uh, PTS, that got MDMA after the blind was broken, had huge improvements compared to, to the therapy-only group. Mm-hmm. Um, so literally twice as, twice as much improvement. But the biggest surprise was 12 months later, the MDMA group, the improvements were pretty much the same. They were durable. Really? They lasted for a wow. year. The therapy-only group tend to have had more relapses earlier. <clears throat> so this was a remarkable finding and led people to say, gosh, you know, it's not a pill every day. It was, you know, three sessions. This is a different model. This is medication-assisted therapy being rediscovered and away from the sort of one pill a day uh, model that uh, mm. f- big pharma and psychiatry have been involved with for years. And one of the reasons that it's not so uh, interesting to big pharma is you can't patent MDMA right now and, and you're not giving something that every, you have to buy a pill a day. So uh, dramatic stuff. It's shaking up the whole uh, world of psychiatry. Anyway, um, those results led to an explosion in research and interest. So why would this happen? Why would taking something like MDMA, which some people say is not even a true psychedelic. And we can talk about the different categories because there's some some interesting separations there. But why would such an experience last for 12 months? And this gave rise to this uh, explosion in research that the tryptamines like LSD or psilocybin or or DMT or the uh, phenethylamines, which is the category of MDMA, uh, that they have neuroplastic effects. They mm. change the wiring. And that's mm. what's really amazing. Uh, now, um, I have to mention that it's shocking to, to think this way and to see these results. But we have to remember that uh, many of these substances, MDMA is quite closely related to peyote. Uh, and uh, and as we know... In ayahuasca, uh, right? Uh, not so uh, in a different way to ayahuasca, uh-huh. uh, differently, but mm-hmm. not not in the same chemical category. Ayahuasca has DMT and harmaline, har- so ayahuasca is more in the LSD psilocybin category. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, and <clears throat> and the tryptamines are typically associated with big mystical or spiritual experiences, and that's why they're often referred to as entheogens. The peyote and MDMA, mescaline, are in the phenethylamine category, they're a little bit chemically different, still work on serotonin and dopamine and many of the receptor systems we're talking about. But often people have a a relational experience of heart opening, so-called empathogenic experience. Uh, And and one of the reasons that's important in PTSD is it allows people to recover their ability to trust and and be in relationship, which is very hard for somebody that's been traumatized uh, that way. Anyway, so yeah, it's sort of a quick uh, summary of of a lot of stuff, but um, it's it's been a um, it's been a whole uh, explosion in interest and research, etc. And we're how, ho- no, go ahead. 
Mm-hmm. Well, I was going to say, and, and you know, it's, it's why we're talking. I mean, one, I think one of the important things is to sort of revisit all this and sort of say, okay, how can we do this better? What have we learned, you know, and how can we pay attention, for example, to many of our ancestors like Ramdas, uh, but also our, our uh, ancestors around the world who use these substances in traditional ceremonial settings like ayahuasca, for example, or peyote, uh, which have been used for several thousand years probably. What about, uh, well, that's what I was going to ask, ketamine, how does that fit in? Because my, I, I mean, again, now back in the day, <laughs> let's see, we were... Uh, what was it called? Horse tranquilizer? What do they call that? That's basically <clears throat> what we're talking about, right? <laughs> and uh, let me tell you that uh, one day, uh, one day in India, we were meditating in the high Himalaya. This is a fun story, everybody. Uh, <laughs> and with uh, Ramdas, we were at a Gandhi ashram in front, right in front of us. You know, like seventy-five miles as the crow flies the full range of the Himalayas in that area, with the centerpiece being this um, peak called Trishul, which is sacred to Shiva. It had the mm-hmm. formation of the three-pronged peaks. Wow. Anyhow, we were in ecstasy. And Maharaji was, you know, about a couple hours away by car. And he was happy we were all stuck up there, not bothering him, I think. Um, so uh, he had told, like one person had asked... Maharaji, can I do this drug, which was um, basically it's ketamine. Um, and um, Maharaji said, yeah, okay, as long as, you know, you're uh, alone and, uh, you know, you're up in the Himalayas, so it's cool and all that stuff. Anyhow, he got Ramdas to to do it one day, Ramdas was going to try. I think Ramdas probably had done it before. I I can't imagine because we all did it at that time. <laughs> it, it just completely slams all the perceptive doors shut, and you are released. I mean, it's an extraordinary drug. Um, anyhow, I was in a room above the room where he was taking this dose of ketamine downstairs from me, and suddenly. I start hearing this eerie kind of thing coming from a human being, noises that I really had never heard before. It was that far out. And I'm like, what the fuck? And I, I looked, and on my floor, was there was a hole in my floor. You know, it was India, so the construction wasn't very good. Anyhow, I was able to look down, and I saw Ramdas. He looked, he was sailing around. He looked like he was the silver surfer and making these extraordinary sounds. And we all, so everybody heard. So we, we one by one, went into the room. I swear to God, this is true. <laughs> it sounds outrageous. And we all yeah. put... A, uh, a a hand on, you know, his foot, his arm, his leg, whatever. Everybody had a hand. You're talking about 20 people or something, something, 15, 20 people. And we all, let me tell you, Silver, we were gone for about a week. I mean, just through that. Of course, we had Maharaji and everything else going on, right? Uh, more to the point. But we would just, uh, we were silent and we were like eating and then everybody would just erupt in laughter looking at each other like we, because we couldn't tell where each of us began and each of us ended. 
Wow. Wow. <laughs> it was an extraordinary experience. And, and, and Ram Dass and, is, and continued for a week? Yeah. I mean, I may be exaggerating, but I remember going to next day's eating because we'd all eat together. <laughs> and and I remember that feeling like we were, you know, we had gone beyond the limitations that we were normally used to <laughs> being in a human in a body. It was wow. Pretty, yeah. So, yeah. So... Ketamine seems to work too. I don't know. It's fascinating what you just said. Yeah. So ketamine uh, has been around for a long time. It's it's a whole story. There's a whole uh, kind of rebirth of ketamine therapy occurring right now. And certainly in the media and people have heard about yeah. it. So we can talk for a minute about it. It's a fascinating story that you gave. Ketamine has been around for a long time now, probably thir- more than 30 years uh, it's used quite commonly in uh, in hospitals for conscious uh, sedation and uh, as an adjunct to anesthesia, mm, because it, right. it's a it's a so-called dissociative anesthetic. In other words, uh, it dissociates your sort of higher cortical process from the rest of your body. So people commonly have out-of-body experiences, yeah. which is which is fascinating by itself. Um, and and it's it's a favorite in pediatrics uh, because uh, you can really do surgical stuff like uh, take care of wounds and all that in patients uh, that you can't use other drugs for. Uh, burn victims, for example, that are young have small trachea and a lot of laryngeal edema and tracheal edema, and it's hard to intubate them. So mm. pediatricians will often use them to dress wounds in a child and that sort of use something like ketamine. So it's very safe. It's well-known in hospitals. And interestingly, it's kind of being rediscovered uh, as a uh, type. Uh, it's it's not a true psychedelic in the sense that tryptamine is a different chemical category, different transmitter, neurotransmitter system. But it's actually uh, known to produce altered state experiences, including some are empathogenic at lower doses, some are clear out-of-body experiences, and some have some visuals, although not as much as with LSD or psilocybin, uh, the, the, the tryptamines. Uh, it, it's in the category, it's chemically, it's related to fencyclidine, PCP, and people remember that. Uh, it, is, it is used in veterinary medicine as an anesthetic, hence the idea of horse, horse tranquilizer. Someone from another country who was uh, raised with horses uh, was in a group that I was with, and they said, yeah, it was used as a horse tranquilizer, and they said, that's a horrible thing to de- say. Horses are so sensitive. How could this be? <laughs> Any, anyway, anyway, so ketamine's been around, and it was actually, it has a sort of uh, reputation in the psychedelic counterculture as well, as well from the 60s because it was used by some psychiatrists as a psychedelic mm-hmm. uh, agent. Salvador Roquette, name, uh, notably in, in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it's back on the scene. It's very safe. Uh, and it, when used in lower doses, it does induce an altered state experience that can be used in the same way that other psychedelics are used in therapy. When I was at Stanford, um, this would have been in the early 80s, uh, I had a friend who was working in pediatric a- anesthesia, and he, they were doing research on ketamine, and they had been giving large uh, bolus doses to children, and, and the children were sort of going out, and the parents were sort of worried about the whole thing, so they were experimenting with a new delivery uh, regimen, which was a smaller loading dose and a continuous infusion. So he called me and he said, would you like to be a normal subject in a ketam- in an intravenous ketamine infusion trial? And I said, yeah, it sounds interesting. <laughs> so so they, okay. they hooked, me, hooked me up to an IV ketamine drip for three hours. 
And I'll tell you, the, the th- I still remember this vividly. And it was it, it was easily 20, more than like 30 years ago. I mean, it was a long time ago. And <clears throat> the, the, he he's, turns on the IV infusion. He's dictating in a dictaphone, checking my blood pressure and all this. And he ramps it up a little bit. And I say, I'm feeling fine. I feel a little this and that. And then the next thing I know, I'm in the top corner of the room. And I'm, <laughs> <laughs> and I, and I'm looking at him, my friend, yeah. playing with the IV. And I'm looking at myself. And oh. I said, wow, if I'm up here, who is that down there? Yeah. And I had this epiphany with the, that, you know, consciousness survives bodily death. And I don't need a, bo- a body in order yeah. to be, be conscious because yeah. I'm seeing this and I have no yeah. body. And on and on. So yeah, a very powerful. Um, That's Ramdas's, um, you know, psilocy- first trip, psilocybin trip, right? Really, really. You, you never heard that story. I don't, I don't know greatest... that story. I don't, oh know, that. I I don't mean, know that. I don't know that. Okay, well, you, I'll have to. You, know, you'll have to refer to the Be Here Now Network and go to a podcast where he <laughs> okay. describes it in the early days. Uh, but basically, it's the same thing. Next thing he knew, he's in this on the ceiling, looking down at his body and going, "What the heck is that?" Really? Just yeah, like that? you just wow. described exactly how he described. I mean, you know, he wow. goes into great detail. It's worth listening to. <laughs> but yeah, that's amazing. Fascinating, unbelievable. Yeah, you know, but you know, okay, so. Well, anyway, just a quick quick yeah. note on some of the stuff because these people are starting. Well, what's this? How is this all coming together? So, ketamine is a big deal on the, in the rave scene in music. Uh, it's used uh, a lot uh, because you can tighten the dose easily. It, it's you know it's easy to take. You snort it and stuff like that. So it's used in that world uh, quite a lot. And and because it's so safe, I think people get along with it. The trouble is that. That world have a tendency to mix a lot of drugs together, which yeah, right, is probably right. not whole good. Other thing. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. The whole other thing, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, probably this is a good time in our program to give the little bit of the small print around this, you know, which is yeah. do not take this at home on your own, thinking that you can uh, therapize yourself with uh, you know, set and setting is real. And responsible behavior is real, and we want to say that. Ramdas uh, used to say that all the time in recent years, just before he left and the time he was in Maui, uh, about uh, you know being responsible for it as a spiritual journey that you, uh, it is best to have someone help guide you through. Uh, mm-hmm. Whether it be reading Rumi poems to you or whatever you like, uh, this is what should happen. So that's our little, what do they call the small print? In the yeah, no, I appreciate that. And and, and the small print in, in, for me also includes a couple of words that uh, we're talking about these substances because they're remarkable and they have an incredible history and a very interesting potential use as therapy. But I have to remind people as a physician, I can't recommend them because they're not legal. Uh, that is very likely to change for MDMA and psilocybin. Well, ketamine is still legal. Ketamine is legal. And yeah. ketamine, when it is being used in therapy settings quite actively now. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And, and, it does, heard. It, and it does work. It does seem to yeah. have an, a clear I, antidepressant effect. Yeah, I've, I just got uh, someone just recently, uh, I did a podcast with him, actually. Uh-huh. A friend of mine who's got a podcast... Mike, and uh, he described a deep, deep depressive journey that he had yeah. a couple of years ago. 
and many, 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 many people are subject to it, especially nowadays with the way our world is. And through ketamine therapy, he said, it absolutely healed me. That's wonderful. And this is years ago, you know, at least a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was happy to do that because everybody out there that is apparently it's legal and it, there's a way and there's therapists that know how to uh, create the kind of set and setting that works. So, right. Now, can right. I ask one thing about because I, yeah. I had an experience um, that many people have all the time. They go to the dentist and they ask for nitrous oxide. Right. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, and I've done this over the years. Um, I pretty consistently have <laughs> darshan uh-huh. uh, with this, meaning the divine presence is there. Okay, right, right. What is it? I mean, is you know, this is no different than than anything else I might have you know imbibed over the years. I mean, most most of what I did was fairly well, I could say, responsible. Even, I mean, being with Ram Dass, I didn't take anything and I got there. Okay, it was just... Right. Uh, so, yeah, nitrous, yeah, that was weird to me. I mean, you know, first of all, what you said, uh, you know, what is that? That's so, in- that's such an interesting question. What is that yeah. that, you t- that you touch into? Yeah. And But let me say a couple quick things about nitrous. Uh, nitrous also quite commonly used in medical settings as, as an anesthetic. It's, it's more an analgesic, it's a painkiller, uh, but, you know, laughing <laughs> gas, <laughs> laughing gas, and well, you can, <laughs> makes you happy, yeah. uh, so it kills the pain. Um, but, but it's actually uh, quite, uh, quite an altered state experience, as you know, time compression is, or, is a, um, or actually it's, it's sort of time dilation. Uh, time just seems to stop with, with nitrous. But anyway, there are a lot of other features of it. That's with, it. You hit it. Now I understand. <laughs> Thank you, Silver. Yeah. Because you're just saying, in, in, when I you know, was in India with Neem Karoli Baba, that's what happened. Really? Yeah, yeah, time, boom, gone, right? right? And it's the same thing, uh, yeah. you know, and you were in a uh, joyful, I mean, it's not even, the words don't say it, it's pretty ineffable, but still, yeah, that's what happened to me on that nitrous. I actually, I, yeah, I had that same darshan. It's, there's only one yeah. thing going on, and right. that's the beauty of all these different possibilities, you know, that you you are experimenting and researching with this uh yeah, you know, wonderful. Um, and those are all features of it. And this has been written about all the way back to the Good Friday experiment of Walter yep. Pankey's work. But it's it's timelessness, it's connectedness to everything, it's the feeling of love and joy, uh, sort of Satchitananda, that sort of feeling. Yeah. Um, all of that is part of the psychedelic experience. It's a remarkable thing. And that is the question: What is that? You know what? What's there that allows you to do that? And I, I had mentioned to you earlier. I had had an experience where I, I was in that state, and I felt this tremendous love. But as I scanned the field, I was just out in the cosmos. I mean, there wasn't anything around me except glittering stars, and there was not no people and no nothing organic, nothing in the field. Yet I was feeling this love. And, uh, and that is what an empathogenic experience can be like. 
But for me, I'm used to having that feeling sort of in relationship to another person or something that I can see. And all. But this was completely with nothing in the field. Mm. And I, re- I remember asking a friend of mine, I said, what, what is that? And he said, you know, Ramana Maharshi wrote about that. That's the ground of being. That's the benevolent universe. That's what's there when you strip everything away. And I, mm. and I mentioned that to another uh, Buddhist scholar uh, that I know. And, and he said, yeah, that, that's, that's what brings, stripping all that stuff away allows that to come forward. That's your sort of Buddha nature. It's in there. Mm. Uh, you're touching into something that's loving, that's benevolent, that's joyful, and that's sort of immense, big, big, and doesn't have all those things. No time, no, mm-hmm. <laughs> ineffable, yeah. can't really yeah. describe it, you yeah. know, the usual stuff. Yeah. So it's fascinating to say that. It's yeah. wonderful to hear the stories, what you said about Ram Das. Wow. Yeah. Um, recently, I... This is my, my newest... Uh, I'm borrowing stuff from this incredible Rinpoche, but I did a podcast recently with... Uh, a good f- old friend of mine, Dan Goldman, who wrote uh, Emotional mm-hmm. Intelligence, and, and he's done a bunch of really incredible w- books and works with Richie Davidson, who I'm sure you know too. Right, right, yeah. Um, so they did a, a Danny did a book with uh, Tsokni Rinpoche. Do you know who that? Have you heard of him? No, I don't oh, know. Oh, so he comes from. I mean, it's just just nuts. He comes from a family. His father was one of the great Toku Orgen. Rinpoche, oh, right. great meditation masters of the last 150 years. Yeah. And he had four sons, and they all became you know, lamas. And wow. Ingyur Rinpoche is one of them who's an extraordinary uh, story in himself, and Sokni, and jeez, uh, I just lost the other brother's name, um, two brothers. Anyhow, they wrote this book together, Why We Meditate. This ties in, it ties in so well to what we've been talking about how wonderful these, uh, how impactful these uh, psychedelic drugs in general, obviously they have different properties and they do a little bit different things, uh, but ultimately where, how do we integrate going forward that which is what this is all about, where we see we are part of one family, you know, and we are interconnected with nature and everything that indigenous wisdom uh, offers us, right. you know, and so he said, there's a, because uh, uh, the ground of being, his mm-hmm. way of saying it was essence love. There's something underneath <laughs> all of the, you know, the perturb the waves that happen, which is our, our lives and going through from the ego I in, in and, you know, and interacting with all of it through people, through events, through circumstances, and so on. But underneath it, he said, there's an essence love, which, again, my my rudder for that is being with Neem Karoli Baba, which that's what was happening. Mm-hmm. Then he said further, so what happens when you contact ground of being, essence love, all one, right? When you connect with that, Suddenly, there's a, the breath leaves you. Uh, there's a big sigh, shall we say, ah. and it's a sense of okayness. He called ah. it. beautiful, beautiful okayness. We are okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, beautiful. And, uh, yeah, so it's the ground of being. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. 
I mean, I, the other, uh, of course, one thing that we kind of need to address, and, and that's, uh, uh, and you have in, in this uh, thing you sent me, actually, uh, where somebody was asking a couple of questions, and one of them was around what happens with this psychedelic research, research and therapy and proving out so, much, so many wonderful things. And of course, but on a day-to-day -day basis, people are using a, a lot of it's in ceremony. I've seen, you know, wonderful groups and doing it and I have good friends who lead them and all that. Uh, but there's a way that you see the attachment to the experience is very strong. Mm -hmm. And that is causing... Mm -hmm other th re reverberations around, you know, the uh, ingestion and the uh, integration of uh, psychedelics. And what happened, the reference was here, what happened with mindfulness, you and I have actually talked about it, mm -hmm. and how mindfulness, you know, without the spiritual uh, form that it came from, which is around loving kindness, which is around, you know, uh, uh, right living, right livelihood, right values, whatever, uh, the Eightfold Path, uh, is, uh, creates a bit of a monster. And how, mm -hmm. how do you think that's happening and how to maybe cut through that with psychedelic? I mean, this is such an important question. Um, so uh, there's so much in what you just um, said. Let me just say a couple of general things. Yeah. Um, meditation with its origins in, in Vipassana and Buddhism is sort of is a foundational practice that's aimed at, you know, walking the Eightfold Path or living a spiritual, ethical life, that kind of thing. Um and and that story you've said is that it's often been sort of taken taken out of that context and seen more as a sort of a tool for relaxation, which is all fine because some people, you know, benefit from that. But it can also be used simply as a tool to sort of be a better corporate salesman or a better sniper in the army or whatever. Yeah. And and that and that's the problem with it. Um, and and so there is a criticism that if meditation is not tied to its foundational principles, it can sort of go awry. The same thing had happened with psychedelics. Psychedelics historically and, and in indigenous use and traditionally were, were sacramental substances used in prayer ceremonies or people were praying to, you know, the nature spirits in a ceremonial calendar, etc. Integration, preparation and integration occurred in a village where people all knew each other, etc., etc. Taken out of that context, lots of things can go go wrong, and that's that's why it's important to sort of think about that. Uh, another corollary is that meditation as a foundational practice, uh, the idea of awareness practices or being foundational to many things in psychology or behavior change, uh, is really important, but probably even more important with uh, psychedelics. Uh, people in the psychedelic world say, you know, the rich get richer, the better prepared you are, the more you're going to get out of a psychedelic experience. And meditation is a very good, very good and important uh, kind of uh, preparation for psychedelics. On the issue of attachment, also um, very, mm. very powerful stuff. Um, uh, peak experiences in general and psychedelic 
experiences as a subcategory of peak experiences bond people because they survive something sort of huge. Uh, if it's if it's a life-threatening experience, their body, we know this from people that have suffered uh, during wars, you know, they're connected for life if they survive together. Yeah. So peak, yeah. peak experiences really bond people and they also um, can create attachments. Um, and we know that Attachments great, are great in many ways because they sort of connect us to other people and other things, but they can also be a big problem in that we get very stuck on them. And, <laughs> and when they're not there, we have lots of uh, problems uh, it, it, leaving them. Uh, yeah. or, and that's in psychology. You know, these are referred to as attachment disorders. And they typically come from early childhood experiences where people are left or, or feel very vulnerable and are scared and that sort of thing. And so uh, they develop these attachment disorders where their relationships are uh, very often uh, uh, encumbered by very fixed kinds of uh, needing to be with the other person in a certain way or the other person need, or the flip, which is also the so-called avoidance addict where someone get close to you and you just run the other way because yeah. uh, intimacy is really scary. You can <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All these kinds of attachment yeah. emotions. I love that though. Attachment disorder. Mm-hmm. There isn't one person on this planet except for a, a <laughs> being that's gone beyond polarity and is no longer me and you that doesn't have attachment disorder of one I, sort or another. You know who, uh, uh, you know, Gabor Mate, you know? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, he's I know. wonderful. So he, he was like therapizing me once on a podcast. And uh, just basically, yeah, you had an addiction when you were a kid. You know, if you really think about it, what was it, you know? And what were you, what was the defense mechanism addiction that you were using to get out of the pain, you know? Mm-hmm. And we all have it. It's unbelievable. An attachment disorder. I got to remember. I got to remember this because I'm going to tell my psychology and psychiatry friends that uh, it's, it's not so. It's not so horrible to have an attachment disorder since we all have them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> from, exactly. From, from a Buddhist point of view, it is absolutely right. You know, that is one of the teachings. Um, and I, I sent you this thing that that I wrote that I had been thinking about this years back. And I wrote this piece that the near enemy of loving kindness is mm, attachment. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. Yeah, we yeah. could go on and do a whole other podcast. Right, right. Let me tell you, Sylvia. And maybe we should one day. Well, this is great, great. Uh, I'm so happy that we managed to get together. Yeah, so. likewise. I've enjoyed talking with you. It's great. I'd love to, to continue to catch up. I get a lot out of thinking about the mo- what's happening mm. now and connecting it to the prior stories. Really helpful. Mm, yeah, those great. those those primary experiences are so important to sort of bring back and and sift through again. And yeah. <laughs> thank God we made them through. New light, <laughs> <laughs> right? Right. One one person told me, yeah, it's really nice to talk to you. He's like he was like eighty. He says seems like some of the early parts of my life, which I thought were pretty off the, out there, seems like it, it made sense. It was it was it was made mm. sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I great. think there's a coherence to this. Right. When we yeah. Do it. Right. No. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, people want to get in touch with you one way or the other. How to? Uh, probably the best thing is uh, through the email. Uh, you know, I do you have a pop- site? I can't remember. Uh, you know, I don't have a site set up. I'm uh-huh. Just just my Gmail address. 
uh, which 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 you you know you can put out there. The, I have to sort of apologize. Though. I get so many emails. Yeah, no, right no, now. let's uh, no, no, let's not do that. We're just going to have to see you. I know what. You've got to put something together in a book. Yeah, I've been thinking about that and um, doing some work with uh, some people uh, in the Bay Area here uh, along that line. We're actually starting to collect some of our essays and stuff. So yeah, that's it. Yeah, a I mean, especially good, coming good reminder. from yeah, good, good coming from you and your depth of experience again with the foot, both in 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 the indigenous world and and. Uh, and and then all the work that you did to become who you who you are as a scientist and a doctor and then this research and then knowing that these two worlds have got to come together yeah uh that's an offering silver i uh, i'll buy it great great well thanks i i need the encouragement so that <laughs> it fits well <laughs> that's part of my job <laughs> that's what i do Great. Uh, so thank you, thank you for being with us today. Everybody, this is Mind Rolling on Be Here Now Network. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com. And uh, you have people like Silver mentioned, uh, Jack Cornfield, who's part of the podcast gang. And uh, enjoy. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>